Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the word of God, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Please pray with me. Our Father, we're so grateful to come in this new year uh, to your word, to hear from you once again. Lord, you sustain us by your word. You protect us. You save us. And we just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power as we look into this great prophecy. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. Many of the uh, great stories of classical literature and works of fiction uh, today, whether books or film, what often hooks us into the drama is a situation of injustice. Whether you're uh, reading a book or watching a movie, there's something visceral about our reaction to injustice. The Count of Monte Cristo, Les Miserables, or even The Little Mermaid. When a powerful villain is flourishing at the expense of those who are suffering, it draws us into the story and we're hooked. We want justice for the oppressed. And of course, this longing is even more intense when it happens in real life, isn't it? One of the most vexing questions in life is why the bad people win and so often good people lose. This is a theological issue that nearly every Christian confronts at some point. Since God is good and just, then why are the wicked allowed to prosper while the righteous suffer? This is the same question facing the prophet Habakkuk 2,600 years ago. A question very relevant for us today. One commentator says this, Can any book be more up-to-date than one which questions the prosperity of the wicked and the demise of the righteous. How many of you have cried out at some point in your life, God, what are you doing? What are you allowing to happen here? It doesn't seem consistent with your character. What are your purposes in this? Why are you silent? Many Christians, if they get the opportunity, love to ask these kinds of questions to brilliant theologians or Christian apologists. How can God allow this, even ordain that this happen? But Habakkuk doesn't just ask an apologist or a famous philosopher. He asks this question to God himself. And we get to listen in, as it were, on the conversation. Unlike most of the other prophets with books named after them in the Bible... Habakkuk, we don't really have any personal information about him. We don't know who who his parents were. Uh, We don't know where he came from. But he is a voice to God's people, not because of his own credentials, but because he bears God's message. And ultimately, that message, as we will see, especially next week, is that the righteous live by faith. We can only triumph in this life through faith in God when we don't have the answers. 
Palmer Robertson says, trust in the purposes of the Lord despite confusing perceptions of precisely what he's doing lies at the center of Habakkuk. Waltke agrees, until the day God avenges the enemies of God's people, the just live by faith, waiting with confidence in the fulfillment of God's unfailing promise. So this morning... We're going to walk through a conversation between the prophet and the Lord, and I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles if you haven't turned there, and and also it will be very helpful to reference the sermon outline that is in your bulletin. So number one, the prophet asks the question, paraphrasing, Lord, why not punish wickedness? Let's read again what Nate read earlier. The oracle, verse 1, that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? So first, what is an oracle? It, it is a prophecy or a message that is to be given to the people. In the King James, it's called a burden. Okay, the God has something to say to his people, and he burdens the prophet, as it were, to say it. It's often the case that the burden... The prophets are given is a message of God's judgment that will come. Something forthcoming he needs to announce to the people because of their sin. And we see this particular oracle is something the prophet saw with his eyes. It came in the form of a vision. And interestingly, this vision includes his own questions to the Lord. It's important. Now this beginning of Habakkuk is also unique among the prophets. Usually a prophet is speaking to the people on behalf of God, but Habakkuk starts here speaking to God on behalf of the people. He's a weary prophet, raising a complaint with God. He's been experiencing, he's been witnessing oppression and violence against the weak, vulnerable. He's been crying out to the Lord, and there's been no response from God. Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Why are you not answering? Why are you not intervening? So what's the nature of the problem the prophet is witnessing? Let's read these questions starting at the end of verse 2 through verse 4. I cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, it's often the case when pain is experienced by Israel or Judah, external enemies are the source of the problem. But in this case, the unrepentant within Judah within Israel, are causing the problems. Not long before this, King Josiah had rediscovered the law, great story, and made all, all kinds of reforms. Remember, bringing things back under the way of God's justice. It was a great time of reform and reformation and revival. Now Jehoiakim replaces the great King Josiah, and all those great reforms are being undone as they return to idolatry. Both the priesthood and the leadership have have become corrupt once again. In Jeremiah 22, we read this. The prophet says this to King Jehoiakim. 
But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. So this is what's happening. People in power have corrupted justice, like in the book of Amos, where they were exploiting the labor of the poor for their own indulging. There's violence, iniquity, strife, contention, and it seems like the Lord just looks on and doesn't do anything. We see later, it's clear Habakkuk understands the attributes of God. He's holy, he's pure, he says. He cannot look upon evil. Yet this wickedness continues. So the prophet's theological understanding of who God is as just and righteous is not matching up to his experience of God. His experience is not consistent with what he knows to be true about God. In some ways, it's similar to the problem of Job, isn't it? Now, he says the law is paralyzed. Those in positions of power are not doing what's right. They're ignoring God's law, which was given as a gift to the nation. Remember, this is one of the things that distinguished them from other nations. If you're not following his law, though, it's worthless to have it. It's paralyzed. As David Helms says, the prophet's heart is breaking over these questions. God's word is ignored. People are numb to it. God's ways are not honored. Justice never goes forth. And this is happening within God's people. Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? How long will you let those in power exercise injustice and let that prevail within your people? He's cried out to God repeatedly, it would seem, and no response. And he expresses himself in a form of lament. This is a formal complaint like the psalmist who cries, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? How can you let this injustice continue? So the core of the prophet's struggle here is unanswered prayer. His perception is that God is indifferent to the situation. Now let's look at number two in your outline, the Lord's response. Justice is coming from Babylon. Let's read in verses 5 together down through verse 11. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than, any, than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So God says, you know, Habakkuk, you've leveled some strong statements about injustice and my lack of action. Get ready for the response. I'm going to do something here, Habakkuk, which you wouldn't believe if I told you. 
The prophet, remember, he's, he's looking exclusively within Judah. He's, he's looking at what's happening among the Lord's people, and he's looking to the Lord. And the Lord says, you're going to have to expand your view to understand what I'm about to do. My action is going to come from outside my people. I'm going to, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Now, who are these guys? The Chaldeans were dominant in the early Babylonian empire, and by this time, they basically become synonymous with Babylon. In fact, some English translations just say Babylonians. So these Chaldeans or Babylonians are going to take the kingdom of Judah into exile, starting around 600 B.C., probably shortly after the prophet is writing here. So in response to Habakkuk questioning God, look at what's happening. Are you not seeing what's going on, God? God says to the prophet, look, see, and be astounded. I'm going to use evil from the outside to remedy the evil on the inside. The prophet says, Lord, why don't you respond? God says, I will respond, and this is how. God will bring judgment to his people, and he's going to do it from the outside using the Babylonians. This is the surprise of the book. God will use an ungodly source to discipline his people. And listen, God will use any and all means necessary to bring his people to repentance, and he hasn't changed today. So the Lord does not dispute the prophet's analysis of the injustice going on. This is legitimate, which is why he's going to bring in the Babylonians and their army. And he goes on here in verses 6 through 11, which we just read together, to describe the power and dread of this Babylonian army. And he lists 20-plus features to describe them. Let's just walk through these. Verse 6, look with me. Bitter and hasty. Imagine a bear robbed of her cubs. Just irrational cruelty in every direction. They don't take time to understand all the details. They take sweeping actions. So the people they conquer tend to suffer greatly. They march through the breadth of the earth. In sports, you might call it flooding the zone. They overwhelm with their numbers. They're very proud, not afraid. Basically, they know they're going to win. They seize dwellings, just like when Israel took the promised land. Now these Babylonians will take their land. Now, judgment will eventually come for Babylon too later, but for now, they will execute judgment on Judah. Look at verse 7. Dreaded and fearsome. Their, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They do not look to God for how to define what's right, what just, righteous. They look to themselves. They will be the judge, jury, and executioner. No glory for their accomplishments will go to God. They're only concerned for themselves. And the irony, of course, is that God has raised them up for this purpose. God uses their own pride and strength to feed on itself for this very task. Look at verse 8. Their cavalry is compared to a leopard and evening wolves, quick and ferocious. Their horsemen, today we might talk about nuclear submarines or fighter jets. Back then it was the horsemen. They're like an eagle swift to devour. Imagine a bird of prey swooping down. Don't bother running for shelter. They're way too fast. Verse 9, they all come for violence. 
The prophet complained about violence within Judah. Now violence will come from the outside to deal with this violence on the inside. They gather captives like sand. Remember, the Lord promised Abraham, the descendants like sand on the seashore, where here they are. Now all these grains of sand will be taken off in captivity, just like was promised through Moses in Deuteronomy 28, if they didn't keep the covenant which they have not. At verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh, they laugh at every fortress. Historically, Israel had a buffer of other nations around them that would sort of take the blow of these, these kinds of invaders, but the Babylonians will come in like a hot knife through butter. You try to stop them with your king, your fortified wall, it's a joke. Things you think will protect you are laughable to them. They make fun of it. It's like the best running back in the NFL bursting through a defensive line made up of middle school boys. Any defense they could muster against the Babylonian army will be made a mockery. They pile up earth, it says, and take it. This refers to their attack strategy where they would build up a siege ramp to gain access to the city walls. And apparently, you can still see remains of this kind of thing today in, in ruins in the city of Lachish. Basically, God provides here a resume for the Babylonian army. And the executive summary would be this. They are quick, brutal, and efficient. In fact, verse 11, they're so good at what they do that their own might is their God. As amazing as it seems, God is going to use a nation that doesn't acknowledge him at all. Their God is their own military strength. That's what they worship. Wonder and be astounded, Habakkuk. Wonder and be astounded, Judah. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. As Palmer Robertson says, the prophet asks, how long? The Lord answers, very suddenly and very soon. So the questions the prophet was asking were answered by God. But God's answers only beget greater questions now that Habakkuk now has. This is number three in your outline. My paraphrase of the prophet's response is this. Whoa. What? Why them? Let's read verses 12 through 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The prophet's basic concern here is that for the Lord to use Babylon to bring his own people to justice seems inconsistent 
with God's character. The Babylonians are evil, far worse than the Jews. But God is good, not evil. Notice Habakkuk knows who the Lord is. He's eternal. He's holy. He's the Lord. He cannot look upon evil. He's reminding the Lord, as it were, of his own nature. So how can this be that you, a holy God, would use a dirty instrument like the Babylonians to do anything, much less punish your own people? We're your special possession. What would be distinctive about your people if you let this happen? I mean, corrective justice is certainly called for, as I've been complaining, but not devastation at the hands of a nation much more wicked than us. Let's not overreact, Lord. (laughs) I know who you are. This doesn't sound like you. I know your character. This doesn't sound like something you would do. It's not so much the punishment of Judah that the prophet questions. It's the manner and instrument of the punishment. Using this depraved people, the Chaldeans or Babylonians, seems completely unlike God. Look at verse 13. You cannot remain silent while the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he. In other words, your people need to be punished, but these people are way more wicked than us, and it's not even close. Your eyes are too pure for evil. You never condone evil, yet this seems evil. Wouldn't this mean that evil triumphs? You've always acted righteously in the past. How could you partner with evil? Look at verses 14 through 17. You made mankind like the fish of the sea. You are sovereign, Lord, over your creation. Nothing can happen without your sovereign superintendence. Lord, you describe these people as proud, brutal, uncaring, relentless. You are none of these things, Lord. Look at verse 15. He drags them with a hook. This is likely a reference to the brutal practice of capturing people like the Assyrians before them. These Babylonians would put a hook through the sensitive lower lip of their captives and string them along, single file. Archaeological ruins and inscriptions of pictures and diagrams validate this practice. To make it worse, they gloat, they rejoice. Second part of verse 15, the dragnet. They capture one people, dump them out, and capture more people. Verse 16, and he sacrifices to his net. It's like a fisherman who pulls in a huge catch of fish from the sea and then worships the net. Babylon worshipped its own military. They will have no idea that you're behind this, Lord. They're so full of themselves, prideful. Verse 17, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This is nonstop, Lord. And you ordain this? You're eternally good, Lord. How can your goodness reward a nation far more wicked than us by taking us captive? This doesn't make any sense to me. And so the prophet is mystified. And he waits for an answer. Number four in your outline, the prophet Lord, please answer, I'll wait. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is aware here of his audacity, isn't he? I mean, he's challenged the purposes 
of the Lord. He's alleged inconsistency with what's happening in his character. And he says, I'm not going to try to figure this out by myself because I can't. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'll wait for the Lord to answer. So he resolves to stand watch and wait for an answer from God. And note at the end of verse 1, he knows he's going to have to answer the Lord after the Lord answers him. And he anticipates a rebuke. But he demonstrates his submission to the Lord, doesn't he? He will wait on the Lord however long it takes. Next week, we will examine the Lord's response in its entirety. Rick will preach next week on chapter 2, which includes this, the main theme, a main theme of the entire book, the righteous shall live by faith. But today, let's consider what we've already seen in this chapter and see if we can draw some principles for our own thinking and living today. This is number five in your outline. I've listed four things here which we will walk through. As we do, let's just consider sort of a summary. Let's consider this. Society has changed a lot since Habakkuk, hasn't it? But human nature has not changed. <laughs> we still have questions, don't we, about why God would appear to be silent in the face of injustice. We still struggle with our perception of the injustices that we see in God's inaction from our perspective. We still have great need for repentance, don't we? We still have tendencies to persist in unbelief and idolatry. And we need to wake up. We need to understand the lengths God will go in order that we would repent. We still need to know God is at work in history, even though his ways are often mysterious to us. We need to remember that they're always good and they're always trustworthy. And finally, we tend to forget how much he loves his people. So let's go through these together. First, letter A, God's painful silence. It does not imply his approval. I was listening to a podcast recently, and an Old Testament scholar was interviewed, and to my surprise, it was a scholar that some of you may even know, A.J. Culp. He and his wife were uh, friends of ours and part of our fellowship at LBC for a few years as he studied at Denver Seminary. I co-taught a couple of classes with him. Well, his academic career is, has really taken off. He, he's, he now lives with his wife and kids in, in Australia where he teaches. He's authored a few books. And I was surprised as I was listening to this podcast I listen to regularly and A.J. Culp is introduced. And toward the end of the fascinating interview, the host asked him what in his own spiritual life and study of the scriptures he most struggled with. And his response was the hiddenness of God. God seems hidden. And he quickly acknowledged the Bible speaks to this issue, but nevertheless, it's a struggle. As the subtitle in a mid-20th century book reads, A Silent Heaven is the Greatest Mystery of Our Existence. Maybe you've wondered why we don't see God's action, clear, miraculous intervention like we read about in the Bible. And one thing, of course, we acknowledge up front is the Bible uh, gives us clusters of these supernatural activities and miracles, but that was not the norm even in biblical times. Hundreds or even thousands of years went by. Most of God's people never saw anything like that. F.F. F. Bruce argues about the hiddenness of God, the silence of God, that this is more intense of a struggle for Old Testament believers because they do not see things in light of the Christ event, like 
like we do. I'm sure many of us can resonate with the, with the struggles of Habakkuk's initial plea. Lord, why do you seem hidden? Why are you silent? Why don't you act in this situation? The prophet was really struggling with why God was not acting. How can you be okay with what's happening, Lord? I think today of the, and throughout history, really, the horrible things people do and have done in the name of Jesus, it's really hard for me to understand how God could allow it to happen. When our theological understanding of his character and his sovereignty doesn't match our perception of reality, it can be a crisis of faith. Two things we can learn in our passage about God's silence. First, just because he's silent doesn't mean he approves of what's going on. We see here in the case of Habakkuk, he's about ready to act. And he's about ready to act in ways far beyond the bounds of what even the prophet was expecting or asking for. Second thing we can learn about God's silence, this is really important. God wants us to ask the questions. He wants us to cry out to him in that silence. Remember, the oracle the prophet received in the vision included his own questions to God, okay? That is to say, even the questioning is inspired by the Spirit of God. Asking the difficult questions was part of what the prophet received and what we now have in our scripture. This makes sense. Honesty is critical for any relationship, isn't it? Including our relationship with God. In moments of unanswered prayer, like the prophet was asking over and over again, how long, O Lord? That's okay. That's what he wants. It's the mark of a healthy relationship, so long as it's in the context of this trusting relationship, this covenant relationship. This is true of any covenant relationship. If my wife doesn't understand something I've done or not done, I want her to talk to me. I don't want her to talk to someone else about me. Come to me. Same with God. If you have a covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ, you go directly to him with our honest thoughts and feelings. We don't fake it or ignore it. And we don't just talk about him to others when we don't understand. We talk directly to him. You see this in the Psalms. People in incredible pain and apparent abandonment they felt by God. They cry out to the Lord, not to someone else about the Lord. To the Lord, how long, O Lord? Even Jesus on the cross cries out to God because he feels forsaken. That was faithful lament and protest. When you're hurting, talk to God, not about God. Listen, it's the difference between God, how could you allow versus how could God allow? You see the difference? Complaining to others about God is not edifying, and it betrays your relationship with God or lack of one. Habakkuk takes his complaint directly to God, very instructive for us. His protest is faithful because he's under the conviction that God is good and holy. We see this throughout this prophecy, his descriptions of God. He just doesn't understand what's going on. He's being honest. Honest prayer takes your burdens to the Lord. This chapter shows God hears our needs and helps us deal with our problems and listens 
even when he doesn't answer the way we might want him to. Like Habakkuk, we wait on the Lord and trust his purposes and timing as long as it takes. And as we will see next week, it's because the righteous live by faith. Look at letter B, God's priority. Judgment begins with his household. Judgment was going to come for the Babylonians, but first it came for his own people. I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me. It seems increasingly easier lately to be agitated by the news or things happening in our society, reports of how everything is decaying around us. I find myself crying, Lord, please bring your judgment on this wickedness out there. It's a lot more difficult to look within, within myself, within the church, and perhaps especially within the American church, how far from the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament we've strayed corporately. It's much more difficult to look at our own lives, to see our deficiencies in light of who we are called to be as God's people. God's priority is our holiness, not our happiness. His priority is transforming you, if you're a believer, into the likeness of his son, not making things as easy as possible for you. He would rather destroy your world completely if it brings you to your knees. He will go to great lengths, as we see, disrupting our peace, our security, and our prosperity if we've stopped trusting in him, if we have looked elsewhere for hope, fulfillment, security, joy. His first concern is faithfulness, true worship, priority of him, obedience to his word inside the church. Tim Keller writes this, the greatest danger, because it's such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel like nothing is wrong, is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our hearts. The Apostle Paul, after he preaches the gospel in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, the Jews who were listening had an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel, embrace their Messiah, Jesus. Paul quotes Habakkuk there. Be astounded, for I am doing a work you would not believe if someone tells you. If, they, if these Jews continued in their unbelief, like their ancestors in the days of Habakkuk, God is going to do something they wouldn't believe. He's going to make the Gentiles more prominent in the church, which is something these Jews would never have believed if they were told. Don't dismiss God's judgment like Judah did and his warnings. Don't persist in unbelief when you're hearing the word of God convict your heart. Peter says in his first letter, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Before the world is judged, the Lord must purify us, his people, his church. If we're to be salt and light, his representatives, his accurate representatives to the world, it starts with us. So tying these first two points together, don't think God doesn't care about your unrepentant sin just because things seem to be going okay right now. Don't continue on a path of disobedience like Judah, 
thinking you've escaped his notice. He sees everything. He saw all the injustices in Judah. And it was just a matter of time before they were carried off with hooks through their lips. Don't interpret his lack of intervention as his approval of your behavior. He's told us in his word how we should live as Christians, and he doesn't change his mind. And affluent societies like ours are especially susceptible to this lie. Things are going great. God must approve. Bruckner says, without that reconciled relationship with God, earthly peace and security are a facade. And sooner or later, the facade comes crumbling down because God cares too much about you to let you persist in sin. Old Testament scholar Richard Hess said this, in the New Testament, James answers how faith and works are connected. In the Old Testament, we need to start with Habakkuk. Those who claim to be in the family of God are his first priority. Your life needs to match your faith. And the Lord will stop at nothing to make you see that, even using a wicked army like Babylon. Which brings us to letter C. God's prerogative. He can use evil instruments for his good. God's sovereignty is remarkable here just from an historical perspective. Within a few years of this conversation, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Historians note the Chaldeans, or the Neo-Babylonian Empire, came into power relatively quickly, had an extensive empire, and then rapidly declined. They became rulers over Babylonia, Assyria, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, when 20 years earlier, most didn't even know they existed. And then they declined almost as rapidly to Cyrus, king of Persia, just in time to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. So within 80 years, this is fascinating to me, within 80 years, they went from nothing, nobodies, to completely dominant empire, to conquered and irrelevant. 80 years. As Palmer Robertson says, just from the historical data alone, you can see God's hand in raising them up, serving his purposes, and bringing them down. As John Calvin says, not by their own instinct, but by the hidden impulse of God do nations rise and fall. So one thing Habakkuk learns about God, which we now learn, is that his sovereignty includes using evil people, evil nations, evil organizations and structures for his purposes. Now, this never means God himself is evil or does evil. The prophet clearly states these attributes of holiness about him accurately. But God weaves their evil actions into his plan. We saw this last year, didn't we, with the life of Joseph and his brothers. We see it most clearly in the ugly Roman system of of crucifixion and the corrupt Jewish leadership in the first century. Luke says in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God uses evil people to bring about even the most amazing work of God, namely our salvation. What about today? I was thinking uh, secular media organizations exposing abuse of church leaders or scandals 
of Christian leaders and organizations. Investigative journalists with motives we might abhor. People who don't care anything about God or his glory. Yet God uses them to expose the wickedness taking place in his church and among his people. Men professing to represent Jesus doing despicable things, completely contrary to his will. God can and does use evil instruments for his good purposes. Maybe you can even think of a time in your own life where God has used an unlikely person or unlikely tool, someone or something that has nothing to do with what you normally associate with God or his purposes to expose you or confront you of sin you need to repent of. That's his mercy. Okay? He will stop at nothing to confront us with that dark place in our hearts where we're trying to let an idol coexist with the Holy Spirit. He will tolerate no rival. And he will use any and all means necessary to get your attention that you might repent. And the reason he does this, believer, or unbeliever, is because he loves you. This leads directly to our final point. Letter D in your outline, God's poetic justice. He disciplines those he loves. One of the most... uh, impactful insights from this chapter for me personally is much more difficult to see in English. But when God communicates what's going to happen to his people, he uses poetry. These things are not written like the edict of an uncaring king passing down a decree for the fate of a nation he doesn't care about. It's the language of a lover who's been betrayed by his beloved. It's as if the Lord is saying to his people, I have suffered long through your repeated adultery and unfaithfulness to me. I've tried to get your attention over and over again through my prophets. I have deeply troubling consequences for your actions. I have harsh news about what is about to happen. I have very detailed descriptions of the kind of godless army That's coming for you. The content of my message for you is one of horrific judgment. But the only way I can communicate that message to you, my beloved, is with the most elevated style of poetic language you can comprehend. Choosing carefully the elegance of Hebrew words, carefully crafting its form and composition, the style of language that lovers use. As David Helm says, we see the pen in God's hand with the painstaking work of a poet to stun the reader that they might feel and respond with repentance. Even in the way he communicates, something so horrible as the coming judgment of the Babylonians, he does it with elevated poetry. I think that says something profoundly beautiful and precious about God's character, doesn't it? At a time when you might think he'd be done with these people, he can't not love them. And if you're his child this morning, this is how he loves you. Don't wait for this kind of divine action in your life. If you're convicted about your sin, praise God for that. That's the Holy Spirit. He wants you to repent, and you can do it one of two ways. You can keep short accounts with God, your lover, your redeemer, 
Not letting a day go by without repenting, confessing, cleansing of his forgiveness, renewing your commitment to him, asking for his power and strength to obey him daily. Or you can wait for the Babylonians. Just know that God will stop at nothing to get your attention. Not because he wants you to experience pain as a result of your sin, but because he loves you. And he knows that any pain you experience in this life, no matter how horrible, is always a mercy if it keeps you from experiencing the ultimate pain of apostasy, of an eternity separated from him. Charles Spurgeon said it so beautifully. If God has broken our heart, he has broken it to give us a new one. Maybe the Lord is breaking your heart this morning. That's his mercy. You're not hiding anything from him. He can see it all. All you're doing is distancing yourself from him, which is inherently dangerous. This is a new year. It's a new opportunity to repent. Don't take that opportunity for granted. Come to him in repentance, which just means you turn from any way of thinking or living which doesn't match his will for you as described in the Bible. This is not an arbitrary will. Like he's just, hey, let's see if if they'll do what I say. This is a deliberate will that leads to life. It's the only will that leads to life, leads to freedom and flourishing. And you trust in what God the Son, Jesus Christ, did in your place on the cross, taking the judgment for your sin, a judgment far worse than anything the Babylonians could do to him. And he offers us forgiveness, a new life, a life in him and his resurrection, a life of obedience, a life of restored relationship with God as your lover, as your redeemer, a life filled with the Holy Spirit, a life of constant repentance as you grow into his likeness. He loves you. And he's shown you that on the cross. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. We're so grateful for your gentle and sometimes not so gentle reminders of our sin and our need to repent. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. I pray for those here, Lord, who do not know you. I pray that they would bend the knee to Jesus today, that they would give their lives to him and experience this spiritual regeneration of a life of obedience and repentance to you, an eternal life of hope and love. Lord, for those brothers and sisters who are struggling this morning with sin, Lord, it's another year. Give them the courage to face their sin, to repent, to come clean before you, to experiencing your cleansing and renewed relationship and covenant with their God. In Jesus' name, amen.